Hello, everybody. <clears throat> Today is. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, this is working. Today is Wednesday, August 12th, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Promotional Law Practice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you very much for joining me. Today on the podcast, sweet, merciful Jesus. There is no MMA event this weekend. Thank the Lord. I'm not even religious, and thank the Lord. Um, but that means, you know, we have to scramble about things to talk about a little bit. Fortunately, there is a lot going on in the news. There is the announcement of UFC 194, Jose Aldo versus Conor McGregor in Las Vegas, not in the stadium. There is continued talk about Rousey versus Cyborg or who Rousey is going to face next. I'm screwing a little bit here. There is Anderson Silva claiming he needs sex drugs or has used sex drugs, which apparently don't have any performance enhancement outside of in the bedroom. He will claim this tomorrow at the Nevada Athletic Commission hearing, which should be interesting. Um, there's that. There's Josh Thompson leaving for Bellator. There is some questions now about how much the payout for the Reebok kits actually entails. So there's lots going on. Lots, 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 lots. Um, so best place to get involved is on MMAfighting.com where this post is embedded. If you could give us a thumbs up, that'd be sweet. I'd appreciate it. Um, you, you can see I'm here in the office here in Washington, D.C., the Vox Media offices. And um, and you're joining me. And whenever you're watching this, whenever you see my face, right, for better or for worse, get up there and share this chat. Share it on Twitter. Share it on Facebook. Whatever you got to do, just let folks know about it, and I'd be hugely appreciative. Today's choice of diet soda, all that's really available. There was diet ginger ale, but I, even I couldn't do that. The old regular diet barks. And it's caffeine free too. So there's actually no point in drinking it, but I'm going to do it regardless. All right. With that out of the way, let us get this process started. What is first? All right, Luke, do you feel the McGregor odds of the upcoming match are realistic? A two-to-one favorite against the reigning champion. Any thoughts about how big UFC 200 will be? Well, those are like four different questions there. Um, are realistic. I don't know what that means exactly. Look, the odds reflect a certain sensibility about the odds makers, which is to say they generally feel like Conor McGregor is a decent favorite. But that line opening up there is a way to encourage betting. So you're, depending on your perspective, you might say, well, geez, look at that line. Um, but there's different perspectives to have here. But you might look at it and you might say, well, geez, I think Jose Aldo is terribly underrated at this. I expect the line will move and narrow, and it will. The line will narrow, I suspect, as time draws near. Um. I'm going to put money on Jose Aldo, right? So you, it, it would be a way to encourage betting. There's also a different angle to look at it where you could say um, McGregor fans are being enticed to put down money as well. Uh, but understand that the line will move. It's partly designed to generate business, but it does reveal some kind of a larger perspective about how the odds makers feel about um, McGregor's chances. If you are a believer in Aldo, now is probably the time to get in on it because it will shift. 
Uh, as for UFC 200, I'm not sure what this has to do with it. I suspect that the winner, the, there may be a third fight scheduled between these two or a rematch at UFC 200, but let's not put the cart before the horse, shall we? Uh, Connor, will the Connor hype go away when he loses and people realize that he cannot walk on water? Nope. Even if he loses, it won't die that much, if at all. I made this point last week with Rousey, everyone being like, oh my God, if she loses to Cyborg, that's the end of things. No, it's not. First of all, I don't think she will lose, but okay, let's just say she does. Um, even if she loses, that is not the end of things. The only thing I don't get is like why you would want, you know, why you would want to have her lose her belt. Like if she loses to Cyborg, I'd rather her keep her belt because everyone's like, well, then it would show that the division is all is weak. I mean, everyone already knows the division is weak. At least she gets to be a champion still. Whatever. Um, someone says, "Is the?" Someone asks, "Are the odds related to the doping suspicion of Aldo?" They're probably related to a number of factors, not least of which could be suspicion among the odds makers. But if there's consensus among them, and there generally is, there's not just Bovada that had those two to one odds. There are other ones that are fairly close to that um, from other from other odds makers. That, that there's a consensus about who is the favorite, maybe to varying degrees. So again, indicates the general inclination among these odds makers. Um, as a matter of fact, a good place to check that out is bestfightodds.com. And let's see if they have that up yet. Yes. So at five dimes, Aldo is plus 155. At bet DSI, I can barely effing read anymore. Aldo is plus 138 to McGregor's minus 168. At Bookmaker, Aldo is at plus 145 and, and McGregor minus 175. At Bovada, it's a plus 155, with McGregor being as high as a minus 190. And then at Sportsbet, Jose Aldo is even higher, plus 158, although to McGregor's minus 172. At Pinnacle, Aldo plus 149 to McGregor's 165. And then at Sports INT, uh, Sports International, I suppose, Aldo is much lower, a plus 125, but McGregor minus 160. So you have Aldo basically from plus 125 to plus 158, a couple of plus 155, with McGregor as high as minus 190 and as low as minus 160. Um, but in all cases, among all these odds makers, the common denominator is what? Aldo is the underdog, the betting underdog anyway, and McGregor is the betting favorite. So just keep that in mind. Um, Anderson Silva's performance enhancers. What are your thoughts on the most recent explanation from Anderson Silva for his failed drug test? Also, what do you expect the outcome of his hearing with the NSAC will be this week? Well, let me just say about, about this. Um, I, I've been reading up on what he uh, is claiming and, um, and the science behind it. I find this to be, even if true, I, let me just say this. I don't like his chances at the hearing because I don't like any fighter's chances at that hearing. The, when, they, when, when they call you to a hearing, you are already guilty. 
you have a chance at mitigating the amount of guilt. You even have a shot at eliminating the worst of the punishment, or you have a shot at bringing about a punishment that is fairly negligible in the end. I think that's what you can hope for. You know, oh, here's a six-month suspension. Okay, I can live with that. Um, you know, $10,000 fine or something. Someone in Anderson Silva's position, I think that's the best-case scenario. But, like, the idea of walking out of there scot-free, clear of any financial charge, clear of any suspension, clear of any penalty in between, to me feels like a pipe dream. Not because necessarily there isn't a good case for him, and I don't know that there is, but I'm just suggesting to you, let's assume that there was, right? Nick Diaz's case to me is ironclad. You are using a test that doesn't measure what you were penalizing somebody for. This to me seems like, you know, end of argument. And, you know, they still throw the book at him, even with an attorney. Um, so understand the, understand the context at which Anderson Silva is entering this hearing tomorrow. He is walking in guilty. Whether or not you think he's guilty, whether or not you think those guilt has some extenuating circumstances, whether you think that the punishment set up for the guilt is relevant, whatever, he is walking in guilty and trying to talk them down from the worst case scenario. When you view it in that light, um, it's a little bit easier to understand why his chances aren't great. So what you have to ask yourself is, okay, realistically, how bad do we think a punishment's going to be for this? In his defense, this is the first time this has ever happened for him stateside, um, widely regarded to be the best fighter of all time, or at least by many, um, has been an ambassador for the sport, appears to have some kind of documentation, although some of that seems incomplete and contradictory, frankly about um, some sort of medical need outside of what these tests claim that they have detected. So he's got some extenuating circumstances there, at least in, in, in part. Um, but really, if I would have to guess, I would guess that uh, it will not go well for him. As for the, as for the you know, the merit of his particular complaints, I don't have much to say about it because it's hard for me to evaluate um, the truth value of it without consulting an expert. Someone asking about the odds again. Yeah, I, I, you should read into the odds as follows. The key is not so much that McGregor was a two-to-one favorite. As I mentioned before, um, in fact, let me look that up. It was that Aldo's the underdog. And to that end, I looked this up yesterday. So let's go through these odds. Discounting Aldo McGregor 194. Let's put that out for just a minute. Heading into Aldo versus Mendez 2, Jose Aldo was up as high as a plus, or excuse me, as high as a minus 250 favorite. Against Lamas, as high as a, you know, almost 800 favorite. Against Chan Sung Jung, as high as almost a 700 favorite. Against Edgar, uh, as high as almost a minus 200 favorite. Against Mendez the first time, as high as a minus 325 favorite. Against Maynard, excuse me, no, that's, that's a different one. Uh, I just want Jose Aldo. Oh, excuse me, here we go. Uh, Jose Aldo against Kenny Florian, excuse me. He was a minus, as high as a minus 350 favorite. Against Hominick, he was as high as a minus 700 favorite. Against... Amburian, as high as a minus 560 favorite against Faber, much narrower. 
as high as a minus 315, but closer to about the mid twos. Against Brown, Jose Aldo was an underdog or it was a pick em. He was as high as plus 120 against Mike Brown. Remember that fight? Went in there and waxed Mike Brown. Took his back and beat him up. Uh, against Cub Swanson, he was as high as a minus 360 favorite. Uh, against Chris Mickle, Jose Aldo was as high as a 1300 favorite. Against Rolando Perez, this is WAEC 38, Jose Aldo was as high as an 800, excuse me, a 1300 favorite again. Against uh, Jonathan Brookins, he was a minus 550 favorite. And against Pequeno Noguera, Jose Aldo was the underdog across the board. And he waxed old Noguera as well. So there you go. So he's only been the underdog twice previously to this against Mike Brown and against Pequeno Noguera. And I guess in his w, his Zufa tenure, he won both of those fights. That has nothing to do with whether or not he'll win the Conor McGregor fight. But so far, whether he's been the underdog or the favorite, he has come out on top. But it's been a while since he was the underdog when he, when he won the title. The WEC title, anyway. Uh, Jose autographs, photographs, and the like. Luke, what'd you think when you heard of the Brazilian Commission sample collector being so helpful as he waited for the sample from Jose? And what do you make of him wanting a photo and an autograph? Does it sound a little odd in your opinion? Yeah, look, I mean, if you want to throw out those test results because of the irregularity and, frankly, unprofessional way in which those were collected, I would have no issue with that. That doesn't then mean he is guilty, right? Because not... Jose Aldo's fault that the person who was charged with doing that was an incompetent and frankly unprofessional buffoon. What matters is what he provided or did not provide. Uh, you know, of course, you know, uh, if you want to say he hasn't yet tested clean insofar as um, not the previous fights, but you know, from, how do, I, how do I say this? What you can't say is he's guilty of anything. But what you can say is he hasn't exonerated himself. Exoneration might be a strong word. He has not put forth evidence that clearly demonstrates uh, an ability to pass a test in a, in a way that is reliable. I, 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 I am okay with that, frankly. Um, it will be instructive and interesting to see how the tests go for this upcoming fight. I don't anticipate any irregularities, but... Um, but yeah, certainly when you've got a collection sample going like that, you just never know and can trust the final outcome. You know, if a guy's asking for autographs, you don't know what he did to that sample. You just don't. So, um, or didn't do to a sample or whatever, whatever a lab that sent him out did it. Long story short, it's just not something you can trust. So this is what I just don't understand people. I'm not sure there is much wrong with getting an autograph or a picture after the work is done, providing all is done correctly. There is everything wrong with that. Everything is wrong with that. It is the worst, not the worst. It is one of the most awful things you can do. You are there to collect a sample. You are not there to be in awe of a person. You are not there to show any affection. You are not there to show any sympathies or generosity. You are there to be professional and courteous, but you are not there to show any reverence for celebrity. Because when you do that, it calls into question everything after. 
that is a massive, massive problem and not okay. And if the person who did that isn't fired, they should not be collecting tests anytime soon. It is a huge problem. The idea that you can say, well, I'm going to collect this test sample, seal it, put it in the bag. Hey, can I get a photograph? And then think that everything there is hunky-dory is total fantasy. If you are showing outwardly, outside the professional context of when you are operating, that you have some kind of, that you genuflect before the power and greatness of a national hero um, and celebrity figure, I cannot in any way trust that what you're turning in hasn't been tampered with. Cannot at all. And will not. It's not Jose Aldo's fault. It's test collector's fault. But nevertheless, taking a photograph, it's like with journalists, you see this, you see these, you know, people have criticisms of MMA media. Some of them are correct. A lot of them are wrong, but they often miss the point. Like, there are so many of these donks who are these part-timers who show up and they take pictures with fighters. Now, that's happening a lot less than it used to. It's actually fairly rare these days, but not uncommon um, altogether. And you see it, and you're like, well, what's the big deal? Like, if you're taking a picture with someone, your reporting on them is um, worthless. It's absolutely worthless. I don't trust anything you say after the fact. If you're arm in arm with someone, you might as well just put the pen down, close the keyboard, and shut it, because I don't care what you have to say at that point. You're not friends. You're not here to adore them. You're not here to look cool with your friends by being next to them, because I don't trust your ability to do your job your interests and your job specifications, be a journalist or test collector, are independent of theirs. And when you align yourself with their celebrity, when you align yourself with their light, when you align yourself with their power, you have already made yourself completely and totally untrustworthy. This is serious business, at least in terms of test collection. This is serious business, and if you're gonna, if we've got, if we all want to do PED enforcement the right way, and I think we're already on the wrong track, but whatever, if we're on this track, we got to be on it. If you're gonna be on it, you got to do it the right way, and the right way means test collector comes up, is very courteous, demands your sample, collects it, and leaves, and that is it. He doesn't have a sandwich with you. He doesn't play Xbox with you. He doesn't take a picture with you. He doesn't. You know, watch your dog while you go for a jog. He doesn't go to the movies with you. You don't have shots together. Nothing. Get in there, do your job, and get out. Period. If you want to like think about you know, how weird your life is because you're testing the urine samples of celebrities later, that's an inevitable human condition. But enjoying the moment on your terms in fandom, pick what you are. Either you are a test collector or you are a fan. You are not both. Dallas Stadium show. Was it ever a real possibility or were they just putting it out there to get the casinos in Vegas to offer more money for the McGregor-Aldo fight? Here, here's my thought on that. I'm sure that some of that was posturing on the part of the UFC to, to, to get it. Um, you know, they, don't, they, they could never be sure, for example, that MGM would accommodate them, right? They had to, like, hedge their bet. Didn't want to go to the smaller Mandalay Bay. I frankly like Mandalay Bay better than MGM as a hotel, but I understand that, you know... Um, 
the Garden Arena is bigger than the Mandalay Bay Event Center. If you've ever been to Vegas, you can see that pretty clearly. Um, but okay, like let's let's talk about stadium shows. You know, it's it's kind of interesting to me. Um, so you can hear all of this if you want to go. I was on Jordan Breen's podcast the, with uh, Press Row, and we talked about the whole thing was about stadium shows. Look, they don't have to do a stadium show this time or next time or even the time after that. But a um, couple of things here. When the UFC is in on a stadium show and they're serious about it, you just know it, right? They've only done one, and when they did it, how they do it? We are going to Toronto. We are bringing GSP versus Shields. We are putting these tickets on sale then. This is going to be a huge show. It's a big day for UFC, and on and on and on and on and on. Boom, let's do it, right? And they did it, and they sold out in, like, what, like 12 minutes or something like that, or whatever it was. They sold out in, like, record time. In other words, when they were serious about the stadium, it was never like, well, we're thinking about it. We might do it. Here's a possibility. No, no, no. We're going. We're doing it. Here are the tickets are on sale. Go buy them. And, of course, they did all the right things, right? I mean, GSP is a Montreal guy, but he's a Canadian guy, so they went um, – it was a big star in the sport and a big star nationally and a big hero. So they had the proper headlining venue. Sport was hot in Canada back at the time. It has since cooled considerably. But nevertheless, you get the idea. Um, so they did, they did all those things kind of interestingly. So, that, so to me, it's like if they ever come out and they say, well, we're thinking about doing it, you can basically be like you know, 99% chance they're not going to. When they want to do a stadium show, they're going to go and do a stadium show. They're going to go. They're going to shove all their chips in the center, and they're going to go. That's how the UFC makes bold decisions. If they're, if they're waffling, if the UFC's ever like, eh, we don't know, we don't know, maybe we're thinking about it, it's a possibility, you know, then you kind of get an idea that it's like, eh, it's probably not all that real. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is they don't have to do a stadium show this time, but, boy, it would be quite a tragedy if the only stadium show Ronda Rousey ever does is at WrestleMania, right? That would be a tragedy. Um, you've got the person at a moment in time, like, look, I've often said Conor McGregor is the best promoted fighter ever because it took a coordinated handshake between he and the promotion, right? That's what that took. It was a guy who had a couple of losses but was seemingly turned around on the regional circuit, had a ton of hype on the regional circuit, had a lot of charisma, and it was him doing a bunch of work on his own, and it was the UFC getting him all these different platforms and, and opportunities for exposure, and it just made the whole thing work, right? It was, a, it was a much more manicured garden. Rousey is just a stru- stru- strike of luck. They didn't really – I'm not saying they didn't do a lot to promote her. They obviously have. But she has had a much more natural momentum. First of all, it was Scott Coker who discovered her, or at least, you know, not discovered her, I should say, but made her a centerpiece first. Um, she was enough that she changed the UFC's mind about using women in the first place. Like, Coker was already in on the idea that women should have a part in combat sports on a major national or international stage. Um, and then, you know, part of what she is is the first woman champion and this Olympian and changing Dana White's mind, this thing had a life of its own in the media, and it has sort of ballooned beyond that. Like, the UFC has done a lot to promote her. I'm not saying they haven't. She's done a lot to promote herself. I'm not saying they haven't. But it's a little bit different to pluck a guy from European obscurity, basically, 
and produce an international star in some ways um, than it is to have someone who just had this natural momentum behind it and to kind of get out of the way. And getting out of the way is also smart promotion. Don't get me wrong. Some people get in the way of those kinds of things. Knowing when to get in and get out of the way is actually kind of an art in and of itself. So you know, UFC deserves credit for all, a lot of the success that Rousey's had. I'm, I would never take it away. I'm just saying that's the stroke of luck, like to have someone who can have that kind of ability come out of basically, you know, um, uh, I'm not saying Conor McGregor can be replicated, but Conor McGregor shows that when an athlete is willing and able and the UFC is willing and able, they can work together for great ends. Rousey and um, UFC is more like just putting the car in cruise control and letting go of the gas pedal, just, you know, let it go. It's not so much of this handshake of each one pulling the rope to get to the next one. It's more like there's just natural winds carrying everything forward, you know. So, um, so I sort of want to make that point. But um, what was interesting to me about the Dallas show, as I, as, I, as I move away from that, what was interesting to me about the Dallas show was that when they went into the stadium show in Toronto, what was notable about it? Well, what was notable about it was they had a Canadian guy headlining a Canadian show, a big star there. And if you look at, like, when Bob Arum took Miguel Cotto to Yankee Stadium, what was the big deal there? Well, he obviously has a huge Puerto Rican fan base in the New York City area. Um, and less so, obviously, or at least not the case at all with Pacquiao and Claudio, but certainly with Pacquiao and Margarito, when they went to AT&T Stadium, what was the big deal? Well, certainly Margarito, while being a villain, has the ability to attract and then you know, re recruit from terms of media, uh, Latino uh, audience to some capacity anyway. Um, what I liked about AT&T Stadium with the idea of McGregor, Aldo, Rousey, Tate, or Rousey, Cyborg, or whatever, was that they're all carpetbaggers, right? They're all carpetbaggers. No, none of them are from Dallas. I mean, you have other guys on the card from Dallas, but I'm talking to headliners. None are from Dallas. None are from Texas. Hell, if it was Rousey versus Tate, it'd only be two Americans, and they would probably be in the co-headlining role. You know, um, to me, I like that idea. It was the idea of it was ballsy. The idea of it was grandiose. The idea of it was um, a moment in time. And when you have these stadium shows, they take on lives of their own. You know, everyone remembers 129 for a lot of things. Part of it is not so much that the main event was all that great because it wasn't. They remember sort of the spectacle of it and the size and the scale and, and just being able to be a part of it. And I kind of feel like, you know, I've talked about it before. If you have 100,000 people who can attend your show, you can set tickets at a level where, I mean, listen, they may not have the best seats, but you can set tickets at a level where, you know, the truest fan can go and attend. Look, the, the value of those casinos is that if you've never been to Vegas – there are these giant, sprawling uh, masses of architecture. I mean, they have, they're full of restaurants, and there's theaters inside, and the casino floor, and they have pools, and they have gyms inside, and uh, clubs, and they have, you know, obviously the rooms themselves, and everything you can imagine. Like, they're self-contained units, and there's Starbuckses, and there's whatever. Um, you, you almost never have to leave a casino if you don't want to. And I, in fact, I was... And I remember the first time I went to Las Vegas, I was 21. And I, I, I recall that you can't even hail a cab on the street in Las Vegas. You have to go to the casinos to do it because that's where all the basis of operation is. Um, and so I understand why there's an incentive to go there and, and why the MGM probably does things in terms of a side fee that makes it worth 
the UFC is wild, but I feel like if Rousey ever fights Cyborg, that's so much bigger than a Vegas casino. And if you put Rousey in a championship title fight against somebody who's a legitimate threat or, you know, seen as one anyway, and Connor and Aldo on top of it, like putting that in a Vegas casino just seems like a waste. Just seems like a waste. I get why they do it. It'll sell well. But when these events are over that are held in that are held in casinos, unless you were there, do you really remember, you know, that it was held in one casino over the other? But if it was held in AT&T Stadium, that would be part of the story of that fight forever. That would carry it into history. That would be married with the moments of the major fights themselves. And so, again, they don't have to do it this time. But if Rousey exits the game without ever having fought in the stadium, to me, that will be promotional practice. Uh, Josh Thompson has gone to Bellator. What do you make of Josh Thompson's release by UFC? Um, lost three in a row, has a connection to Zinkin. Can probably make um, a decent amount of money in Bellator. He's probably worth more to Bellator to have than UFC to keep. Or at least, you know, terms the terms that Bellator is willing to pay him. The ability to get sponsors, all those things sort of make sense for him. It's not altogether surprising. Who would you like to see him fight first in the light heavyweight division? Um Isn't Rickles fighting Friday, if I'm not mistaken? Who's Rickles fighting coming up here? He fought Alessio. Well, let's see. Or 141. Gillard versus Gert. No. Pat, uh, Patricky Friday is fighting Saada Watt. Excuse me. I'd like the winner of that. That'd be fun as hell. But he can out-wrestle those dogs pretty easily. Uh, there you go. Joe Rogan and Brendan Schaub keep saying that MMA websites need to stop monitoring their podcasts for MMA articles. Um, I haven't heard their argument for that. And I've often, you know, I don't, I don't quite understand the fascination with, you know, Look, if you say things on your podcast and you have a bit of a name and it's at all something outside of the norm, uh, if it's at all outside of conventional wisdom, if it is in any way surprising, people are going to talk about it. It's just the way life goes. It may be a waste of time or some sort of like cheap vulturism, but that's life. Would you put Rousey and Connor on the same card in December? If not in December, at some point. Yeah, sure. As I mentioned before. But I wouldn't put it in a Vegas casino, man. It just feels like a waste. You know? So there's just so much bigger than that. After I, Mayweather Pacquiao was such, a, was such a success monetarily and such a disaster, I thought, for boxing in some way. Not disaster, strong word, but like... I'm telling you, man, it just left me, a, it gave me a bad impression. It really did. You know, having a bigger venue where more people can go, you can still make a lot of money. Hell, if you go to AT&T Stadium, you might be able to set records. And that's the other part. Like, you look at some of these boxing gates, there's multiple of them. Like, you know, nearly a dozen or more that are in the teens. And the UFC has the highest gate in less than $8 million. Less than $8 million, $7 million and some change. Like, there's room to grow in terms of making money for themselves. 
Um, and if you do it at a bigger venue, you don't have to do it on the backs of um, fans, at least not by breaking their back anyway. Uh, UFC and USA Wrestling, how do you think the renewal of this partnership is likely to benefit both sports? I don't think it means a whole lot. I think um, they just sort of like shine a positive light on the other. You might see some USA Wrestling stuff related to UFC events. Um, USA Wrestling stuff on the canvas here and there. Uh, you know, the integration is not necessarily all that robust. Uh, George Lockhart's comments. Who goes, wondering about your thoughts on the comments made by George Lockhart MMA Hour this week. He certainly sounded like he knew what he was talking about and seemed extremely confident that he could help Cyborg make 135 in a healthy way without sacrificing her strength or power. Do you believe this can and will be done? Well, it will be done if George Lockhart is obviously a very competent guy, okay? He knows what he's doing. I was there when he helped Mike Easton cut, I think, for the uh, I think for the Chase BB fight. And the way in which he was, like, rehydrating him was crazy. Um, look, if she can make 135, great. That's awesome. But to me, when you say something like, well, it'll take four to six months to get to a point where we can cut, and she'll be 170 pounds the day of the fight, it to me seems like on its face unhealthy. You know, on its face seems just terribly unhealthy. Um, doable, maybe. Um, reachable as a goal. She can get on that scale, and it'll, it'll read the numbers 135. But, like, the idea that, I, the idea that, that that's optimum – Cyborg, I have a very hard time believing that. I'm not saying that George is lying. I, I, I certainly believe that he thinks he can do those things, um, and I'm certain he's going to give it his best effort. But in the end, the body, the human body has limits, man. It has limits. And this whole thing about she has to go down to 135 is not a real argument. It's just not. It's not a real argument. If she wants to because that's the only way to make this fight happen and she feels she needs to, I guess there's that. If Rousey doesn't want to go because she's the champion of that weight class, doesn't feel she has to, as I've alluded to before, that's fine too. But the idea that, like, well, how does this fight happen if it's not at 135? Well, easily at 140 or 145. If Cyborg could fight at 135 and that was the best weight class for her, she'd have done it a long time ago. A long time ago. It's not. It's not the best weight class for her. That it might be attainable uh, is one thing. And the idea that it's attainable without costs to me, I will see when it's all said and done. I am very dubious of that of that idea. Very, very. I find it very hard to believe. It might be true, you know. We'll see. Not saying it's not true because we just, we don't know until she tries. I am betting that that is that is a a a. In the end, the idea that she can compete at one thirty five, even with a specialized world-class help of someone like George Lockhart, as well as she did at 145, I find that very hard to believe. Very hard. You know. Um, but, you know, it's, it's these, all, these, all these absurd talking points that people think are reality, like, you know, why does she have to go up? Oh, I don't know. I mean, she doesn't have to. She doesn't want to. But that's the combat sports. That's what champions do. They clean out a division, and then they go. That's that's how every champion does it. Um, they don't have to do it. They don't want to. That's fine. But 
but that's the path. They don't. Everyone's like, well, Rousey's the champ. No, well, Cyborg's the champ too. You could say, well, that's the Invicta champ. It's not the same thing as the as the as the women's you know championship. Okay, that's fine. But you know, um, this idea that you know Cyborg is some Ronin wandering the earth without having achieved greatness uh, at the highest level that she's been uh, offered, you know, and isn't isn't a championship caliber fighter or isn't a champion is you know. Like there's like there's only one champion in this discussion. No, there's two. There's two. Well, the women's bantamweight division is, is much better. It's it's better. It's better. Um, I wouldn't call uh, you know is it is it so great now that you know I mean women's one forty five is probably worse. In fact, it's definitely worse. But anyway, um, but she's the champion of the UFC, and Cyborg's coming over to the UFC, so she's the only UFC champion in that equation. And therefore, I think maybe that's what people mean. But I, I'm just sort of pointing out that, like, this whole argument that it can't take place outside of 135, to me, just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. It's just so it's so not convincing. There, there are reasons why the fight doesn't have to get made. But one of those reasons being that the fight can only take place for a belt at 135, to me, is like, what? Just make the fight. Pay these women the millions that they deserve for it, which I'm sure they won't get, but, but one of them will get. Pay them the millions and be done with it and just make the fight at a catchweight. Like, why is that so hard? When you think of it like that, like if, imagine, imagine the promoters weren't insistent on it. Because Rousey has often a, a fought at 145 and talked about going up to 145 to accommodate Gina Carano, right? So this idea that she's like objectively against going up in weight is just, Total fabrication. Okay. Uh, if so, if the imagine if the promoters were not insisting on it, imagine they had never brought it up. Like, can you make a cyborg fight? Yeah, we're working on it. All it would take is offer this person enough money, offer this person enough money, and then have the parties agree on, on the final terms. But if there's no if there's no phony pressure coming in to have to have the fight at one thirty five. Where do you think it might take place? Probably at 140 or even 145. Because you already dominate this weight class. Let's leave that and go up to someone else's to see just how much better you can get. That's what every champion does. I don't know. It To me, it just seems like everyone has bought into talking points that have been so aggressively pushed that we've now accepted it as like prima facie reality. When in fact, it's just not, it's, they're, not, they're not even there. They're just imaginary arguments why you can't do things. Just make the fight. Pay him enough money, call it, split the difference on the weight, and go. This happens in boxing all the time. Well, their titles are not so worthwhile. And like, 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 well, like, but Rousey has a real challenge in that division. She's just so beleaguered by the thickness of that division that she can't bother to, to leave it, you know? Come on. It's just not real arguments. Can we get you on the Joe Rogan podcast? Uh, what do you think of Robin Black saying all Cyborg has to do is run and eat less if she wants to make the fight with Rousey? Yeah. Let's put – he might be right. Look, I don't – I'm not, like, confused. You ever seen, like, a starving dog on, like, a humane society thing? As a proportion of their weight, if you just starve yourself and have activity, you can get down to certain levels. The question is, at what kind of elite performance? And I saw all kinds of people on Twitter – being like, you know, when I was in college, I I uh, I cut out beer drinking for six months, 
and I lost 30 pounds. If I can do that, certainly cyborg. It's like, dude, what, what the F are you talking about? <laughs> First of all, this happened everywhere. Everyone was doing this. Your body is not the same as cyborgs or Rousey's or anybody else's. Second of all, unless you're a pro athlete and a pro athlete in a similar kind of sport, talking about what your body can and can't do means nothing to me. Nothing. It's not part of the discussion. I'm not saying Robin Black did that. I, I, you know, Robin actually gets up there and competes, but um, other people on Twitter that I saw or, or you know, people I've talked to at the gym, you know, it's like, well, why can't she do this and why can't she do that? It's like, dude, you don't even know how her body works. You have no clue. And, and you are not an athlete, and you are not being asked to fight Ronda Rousey. Like, these things to me are just like, so ridiculous that people bring in their personal experience. You are a donk who, like, shuffles across the street when the light turns yellow. You are not a world-class athlete. Like, I don't care how your body responded to things you did in your previous life. It doesn't mean, it means jack. I don't care about it at all. What I want to know about is cyborg. And I think that she probably could through a means of calorie depletion and activity increase make 135 pounds. But that to me is not the point. The point is not can I hit a number on the scale. The point is can you hit a number on the scale and uh, douchebag, hit a number on the scale and uh, have the same level of performance. And George Lockhart is confident she can. Okay, you know, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt until I see it. But I just find, and you're gonna you're gonna jump back 35 pounds by the next day. You know, if you're putting that much in, you're taking too much off, man. You're taking too much off. So we'll see. We'll see in the end uh, what it all means. But this is this is just to me. It's we're we're having a discussion about weight that we never have to have. We're wasting our time with this. This is so irrelevant to everything. It's your, what are you gonna do if Cyborg wins? Lots of things. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about that? These are all solvable problems. We are creating obstacles to making a fight for no good reason. Because Rousey's the favorite in all three iterations at 135, 140, and 145. She is the, she is the favorite everywhere. And I admit that the chances decrease as it goes up, but she's competed in that weight class. She's comfortable there. She could bulk up too. Like, it's just, it's just, it, 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 they're not real arguments. They're just not real. They're, 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 it's a phony line that's been, uh, not lying exactly, but it's, if the fight doesn't get made because people think that weight was some actual stumbling block, as I mentioned in the MMA beat, you are playing yourself. You are gullible as hell. All right, let me see something here. The, the, the argument that weight is the main deterrent. Here we go. No, I'm not saying Robin Black's quote looks ridiculous. He's right. If you deplete yourself in calories, and you up your activity, you can reach a number on the scale. Do you guys ever see uh, Christian Bale in The Machinist? I mean, I mean, he made a number on the scale, and I think he was like, I don't know, man, he must have been. 
around 100 pounds or something. He looked, he made, you can get down to these levels. It's not, it's not impossible. But the idea that that's your optimum you, that's, that's the best you. That's the best MMA you as a fighter, you know. And you're going you're gonna to lump back on 35 pounds the next day. It's ridiculous. And everyone thinking, well, and, and then this person says, I, I can't believe people buy into this nonsense. The downside is that Cyborg would have to lose some of her muscle mass, regardless of whether or not you buy into the argument that weighs the main deterrent for this fight happening. Uh, yeah, I agree with what Robin is saying, too. I agree with what Robin is saying, too. She can get, she can make that number one three five on a scale. If that was her optimum version of herself, she'd have been doing it a long, long time ago for her own career, for her own monetary gain. That's where all the rest of the business is. She's not feasting on people overweight. Her, I mean, overweight. That's a tough cut for her to get to one forty-five. My God, and it's the only person in MMA who we put this kind of pressure on to just lose, 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 lose. You know, everyone else was like, I'm concerned about this. This person needs to go up and wait, not down. But for Cyborg, get down and wait. You know, it's just, it's so absurd. Like, it's so not real. It's not real. Like, it drives me nuts. Like the world would end having a 140. Glover fights who? After Glover's decent win against OSP the other night, who would you personally like to see him fight next? Should he perhaps fight the winner of Rumble and Manawa? Um, sure. Sure, I'd be okay with that. Or they already, the Bader fight already happened, right? I believe so. I can't, I can't even keep anyone's record straight anymore. See real quick. So Teixeira, yeah, he beat Bader. That's right. Forgot. Then dropped two, and then beat Ovin Saint Preux. Um, Yeah, you know, listen. I think I think he's still hovering top five. I wouldn't be in a rush to get him right back to the front of the queue, but something like that sounds about okay. Daniel Cormier versus Alexander Gustafson. If John Jones couldn't take Gus down. Well, he did take us down. Do you think Cormier will? Yes. Jones has better MMA wrestling than Cormier. What does that mean? Guys, when you talk about wrestling, when you talk about striking, you can't say X has better striking than Y. What does that mean? Better striking how? Better striking Y? These are just, these are just generalities that are so general that they might be true or false, but that's not the point about whether they're true or false in a general sense, the point is how they apply to different unique challenges. If you don't think Daniel Cormier can take Gustafson down, you are dreaming. You are dreaming. And by the way, Jones did take Gustafson down eventually. And I think with her, I think the next time they meet, if and when they meet, I think Jones will have not too much trouble getting them down. That's what I think. Um, but when you talk about wrestling, Cormier can punch his way to an underhook either in free space or against the cage, almost without exception. And from there, he can actually uh, drop levels. He can pick up. He can do slide-bys. He can do all kinds of things to get on someone's hips and either do a pick-up and drop or a mat return or something. 
Um, the idea that that Gustafson can avoid that over the course of a five-round fight to me is, is fantasy. And even at an advanced age, I kind of like Cormier's speed um, to do the trick. But never ever say something like X has better than Y. Well, in what way? Right? In what way? Always, 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 always talk specifics. Always. And if you don't know specifics, look them up. Talk to somebody who does. But never ever say, well, this is better than that. I mean, unless it's like a gross disparity in talent. Uh, technique talk. To begin, thanks to the interview with uh, Ferguson on Rousey. Thank you guys for, for watching that. I appreciate it. I was curious that he did the interview and his opinions change your views on Rousey in any way. Uh, no, but they helped. They didn't change my opinion because I, I had a pretty high opinion of her to begin with. But they made clear some things. The only thing I took a little bit of exception with was he said, um, you know, Rousey would be is better than someone like Mackenzie Dern in submission grappling. You know, I have a hard time accepting that because his reasoning was, and he didn't want to name drop, so I don't know what he's seen or hasn't seen. I'm sure he's seen quite a bit. Um, but he mentioned that, you know, she has more hours on the mat. But I don't know that that's true. Mackenzie Dern's father is Megaton. You know, Mackenzie Dern has been doing jiu-jitsu since she was two. Um, and if you look at what she's doing, if you looked at um, – the the five grappling super fight series that just happened, she was winning those matches against other elite black belts in like 30 seconds or less, right? So do I think Rousey could hang with the best jiu-jitsu women? Um, yes, I do. And maybe even beat some of them. But Mackenzie Dern is a road a little too far for me to cross, you know? But that's just my opinion. I could be totally wrong. Maybe they've rolled. I don't even know, you know? Um, but everything else, I thought he did a really, really helpful job in understanding the context in which you know Rousey comes to us and why she's successful, and and you know the transference of her skills and her understanding of space and time and why she's able to compete so fast. I also thought some of the stuff he said about her being an escape artist was really important. You know, for the Cat Zingano fight, everyone talks about the fact that in that Zingano fight, what was the most amazing was the armbar she had never done before. But to me, it is impressive. It's definitely impressive. But if you talk to black belts, things like that happen, I won't say all the time, but that's not the first time I've heard of someone doing something like that in a match. Um, now, a big MMA fight against, you know, you know uh, pressuring competitors, it, it's impressive. I'm not saying it's not impressive. It's very impressive. But to me, the most impressive thing she did was like that Grand B-roll cartwheel once Zingano tried to take her down to come out on top. Because that was so instinctual, that is so rare, that is so athletic, um, that that is very, very hard to reproduce. That, to me, was the most impressive thing in that whole thing. The armbar was cool, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, stuffing armbars behind the back and, and, and then driving your hips forward, that's all great. But that was, to me, like the second or maybe third most impressive thing in that fight. The number one thing was that Granby roll off the takedown she did to come out on the top side. That was ridiculous. True or false? UFC 190 does over 900,000 buys. Got to be true, man. Kahal Pendred's Twitter war with CM Punk last night was sadly his best performance inside and outside the cage. I'm not going to answer that. John Jones fights the winner of Daniel Cormier versus Gustafson early next year. I'm going to say true as wishful thinking. There will be an MMA beat this week. Yes, but it's on Friday. Thursday.
Let's see. True or false? No one in the UFC can defeat John Jones. Well, all of them can defeat John Jones, so that's false. John Jones versus Chris Wyman can generate more pay-per-view numbers than McGregor versus anyone. False. Jose Aldo can take down McGregor and submit him. True. Not saying he will, but it's true. Okay, I am so glad I got to this question because James Glory asked this question, and everyone loves James, especially me. James is great. I'm glad he's here, but I cannot believe people are asking this question, that it even comes to mind. Someone said, so, he, so James says, James, I love you, so just take it easy. But James asks, is Cajal much too high level a first fight for CM Punk slash Phil Brooks? I know Cajal seems to be less than popular recently, but the truth is he's an experienced high-level fighter who lost only once since joining the UFC. Punk is 0-0. Zero and zero. Should the UFC match him against a fellow debutee or a very new fighter instead of matching him against Cajal? Okay, so I'm glad this question got asked because it is absurd. It is absurd. It is beyond absurd. Cajal Pendred, whatever you think of him, would wash CM Punk. He would, he would, it would be torture porn, folks. It's not up for debate. There are guys in my gym who would wash CM Punk. I could pick a couple of gyms around here where that would happen. And I can go city to city where that would happen. Guys, Cajal Pendred is a UFC at the lower end, but a UFC level fighter. And even in the fights where I thought he lost, it's not like he got blown out, right? It's not like he got taken down and submitted. Ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to fighting skills, maybe not Twitter skills, maybe not likability, whatever. When it comes to fighting skills, Cajal Pendred is in another dimension of the universe relative to Mr. Phil CM Punk Brooks. They're not related on levels in any way, shape, or form. It's not just a guy who's zero and zero in the UFC. It's a guy with basically no martial arts background, approaching 40, does not appear to be particularly athletic in any way that I can tell, who has no amateur fights. He has no amateur fights. Trains with a world-class team, what does that mean? There isn't a commission on earth, I don't think, that would sanction that fight if they even attempted it. Now, they made James Tony versus Randy Couture, but James Tony at least had some kind of combat sports background, being one of the best boxers of our era. Well, he has, Punk has nothing. Now, he seems to be a great guy, and I, I wish him well, but they're going to match him up with someone that A, a commission will approve, and B, is a very, very, very low-level pro, or maybe another guy making his pro debut. That's it. That's it. Anybody who has a win already in the UFC, probably independent of weight class, is going to beat him. It's just not an argument you can have at all, at all. Folks, fighting is super difficult. And maybe Cajal Pendred hasn't blown the doors off everyone in terms of entertainment. That's got nothing to do with the fact that what kind of ability does he have? Roger Huerta washed out of the UFC, right? And he crushed some 300-pound linebacker from the Falcons in the University of Texas. I mean, mopped the floor with him. 
And this is a guy who washed out of Bellator too. You know, you just have to have some perspective about what we're talking about here. Universes apart are what they are. Universes. And everyone can go in there and catch a lucky punch. That all happens. But my, my guess is Pedro will either knock him out on the feet quickly or take him down and then smash him on the ground one way or the other. Like it wouldn't even be a contest. Fighting is super, 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 super difficult. Super difficult. Getting good at these things at an elite level is insanely hard. Just because you work at it doesn't mean you're ever going to get there. If we're talking about strictly merit, if no one knew who this guy is, he'd be struggling to get amateur fights right now. That's just a fact. Even at a world-class team, you would be, you would be fighting on the amateur circuit. You'd get at least two or three fights before de declaring pro. That's not an insult. That is the way this works. I know. I have teammates who fight amateur and pro. I've seen it. I've called amateur fights. I've called pro fights all on the regional level. I've seen how this process goes. Unless you are some phenom 22-year-old kid, even then you have to go get some amateur fights more often than not. Okay. So they can Twitter beef all they want. They are that far apart. Cajal Pendred would steamroll him with a quickness, a quickness that would be shocking and horrifying to watch, like how Rousey beats her opponents kind of thing. Y'all can laugh because she hasn't done that against other guys at his level. It's, it's a fact. Guys, if you ever have any doubts about how hard fighting is, it's not hard to get a nice reality check. Go try. Hell, go to Dublin and go to SBG and lace up some 16 ounces opposite Call Pendred, and you will get your ears effing boxed. Comparing him to the super, super elite doesn't look so great. Comparing him to a guy with no amateur fighting experience, no professional fighting experience, and no combat sports background at age 40. I mean, this is like, you know, who's a better chef? Uh, the home cook who's never proven anything and only just started really kind of cooking in the last couple of years or uh, Jose Andres or Tom Colicchio. Oh, I mean, not, oh yeah, not Tom Colicchio, but uh, hell, even if he's Guy Fieri, he's still better. All right, statement from Cyborg's camp. While I freely admit that I am not the biggest Cyborg fan out there, I am utterly confused by her camp's actions and statements over the past month or year. The way she touted that she would uh, be at UFC 190 only to no-show. Tito's constant bizarre statements. The fact that her nutritionist stated that, the only way, that, they, that they only talked to him about the weight cut two weeks ago despite her having gone on for ages about how seriously she's attempting the weight cut. I guess my question is that uh, my biases toward her making her camp statements seem crazier um, than they are, or is there something really weird going on in your opinion? Um, I hate to admit it, and once you get burned, you got to be careful about talking to people like that, but there is, for people in power, a lot of value in lying to the media. Not all the time, and eventually it erodes, it erodes your ability to, you know, it's like the boy who cried wolf kind of thing. If you do it enough, 
um, you know, they stop talking to you or like they hedge their bets about you. You know, you become like Bob Arum where, you know, yes, some things he says are quite correct. Other things you're like, uh, okay, Bob, you know, you just kind of dismiss it. So it's really hard to ever take the truth that he spits, you know, seriously. Um, but there is in the short term, a ton of value in lying to the media and I hate it. I wish it wasn't true, but if you say something crazy, People go, oh, well, they said something crazy. We should print this, and you print it, and I've done it a thousand times. I will do it in the future as an editor. I've done it. Like It's just part of the process. Um, it gets your name out there. It makes you part of the conversation. People are like, why would Tito make those claims if the UFC had never done it? Well, maybe they had, and maybe, or maybe he was fudging the truth. Whatever the case, we're talking about Cyborg versus Rousey. We're talking about Cyborg's willingness. We're keeping her name in the media. And if we're fudging the truth or lying, okay, great, but we're – we're succeeding in making her part of the conversation, which for now is all we need until we actually have to make some difficult choices one way or the other. There's just a lot of value in it. I, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. Um, it's why politicians do it. It's why it's why you know celebrities do it. It's why celebrity athletes do it. It's because there are consequences enough if you do it enough, but. There's a lot of value in lying to the media, and I wish that was not the case, but fortunately it is. Okay, Luke, who you got? Who would you pick in some of these catchweight fights? McGregor versus Barboza. I would take Barboza. Verdum versus Jones. Ooh. Boy, that's a tough one, huh? Maybe, maybe Jones? Uh, that's a tough one. Weidman versus Johnson. I think you mean Anthony Johnson? That's a tough one too, man. I might take Anthony Johnson on that one. Sterling versus Holloway. Uh, Holloway. Rockhold versus Gustafson. Ooh, that's a good one. I want to see how Gustafson looks against Cormier before. There are two sort of like referendum fights. I mean, we kind of know who Gustafson is, but I think I want uh, Cormier. And then I feel like Rockhold versus Wyman is a referendum fight on both guys. Like, how good are they? We know they're very, very good, but how good? Um, I feel like those two fights will tell us a lot. Team fights in Poland, man. I just don't watch that. I just don't watch. Uh, someone asked a question. It didn't get wrecked, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Which is best a, uh, for BJJ? A basic level move done by a top-level fighter or a high-level move done by a basic-level fighter. It will always be a basic-level move done by a top-level fighter. You know, someone, a black belt actually said this to me last night, and I thought it was true. He was saying, like, even in jiu-jitsu, forget MMA, where it's definitely true, but even in jiu-jitsu, like, the mount is a lost art. People want to work from side control or maybe half guard or, like, knee on belly just for scramble. And the back is, people have gotten better at the back, you know. But like mouth is a lost art because like anything else, you have to work on your mouth. You have to work on how you place your hips. You have to work on how you keep people underneath. You have to work on how when people turn, what you how you respond and how you grab an arm and how you grab a, you know, all, it's just difficult. Like it takes a long time to get good at it. And guys back in the day used to have these like, you know, Hodger Gracie used to have a mouth, man. That was like, once he got it, like that was it. It didn't matter how good you were. You were getting, you were just getting crushed. Um, and this is not the case these days. And so, you, you really see that in MMA where guys are very – they might move to mount if there's someone like Glover Teixeira where like it's a – he has a black belt. There's a, there's a skill differential in those kinds of positions, and they're heavier, you know. Um, but, you know, the lighter weight classes, it's really, really hard to hold those guys. And I mean, I get it. But 
I also think that mount defense has become really good. And as a consequence, people have in, invested less in their mount in terms of making it, you know, a much more solidified position. Yeah, someone asks about Rousey and BJJ. I've kind of already answered this, but let me just sort of see what the question is. Many agree that Rousey's dominance is largely because in contrast to her women's MMA contemporaries, she's a lifelong athlete. However, some of the women's BJJ elite have been born to BJJ families and BJJ royalty and are also lifelong athletes. All of things being equal, had Rousey gone to BJJ instead of MMA, do you think she would have been as dominant? She would still be very, very dominant, I suspect, if not, you know, a world champion. Uh, best BJJ coach in UFC today with EBI four coming up. Eddie Bravo has been doing the rounds on my favorite podcast. I was wondering where Eddie Bravo stacked up in the ranks of BJJ coaches in MMA today. Would you say he's top five? I don't know. Uh, he's very good. He's very good. You know, I like, um, I'm, I'm partial to, uh, Ricardo Laborio. Um, gosh, um, who else is good? Um, Uh, Neil Melanson, Melanson, however you pronounce it properly. That's not BJJ as such, but submission grappling. He's great. Um, John Danaher, got to be up there. John Danaher might be my number one, now that I think about it. Yeah. Luke, do you purposely dehydrate yourself and wait till you can drink diet soda during the live chat? Yes, I do. Also, so I don't have to go to the bathroom during the live chat. Talking up here for like an hour and a half, man. It's draining. <coughs> um, good question. The Reebok deal. Matt Roth mentioned yesterday that he's heard that fighters receive 20% of the 15% of the, the UFC receives of the fight kits sold. Have you heard anything about this? So look, so there's a question about if, you're, if, you, if a fight kit costs $100, how much does the fighter receive? The truth is we don't actually know because the UFC won't comment on the record about it. Um, what some managers, several managers and several fighters have told John Nash at Bloody Elbow, who is doing just sensational reporting these days, is that it is under the, that the Reebok pay is structured just like, or, or a function of the existing merchandise agreement, which is where fighters get a proportion of the, um, of the, UFC royalties. So in other words, if it's sold, UFC gets a cut, and of that cut, they get one. So think of it like a bartender or waiters where they all collect tips together. They all share those tips, but then they tip out to um, people who bust tables and dishwashers and so forth. So that's something like that. Um, and then the, the restaurant keeps the, the money sold on the merchandise or the, the food. So if you worked out the math, uh, it wound up being like about roughly, and, we, and these are all estimates, somewhere around $3 that went to the fighter for every $100 fight kit sold. Now, they're $95, but we're just rounding up, right? It was like it was like 15% of 20%, something like that, or 20% of 15%. Yeah, that's right. It was 15% royalties cut, went to UFC, and then the fighter got 20% of that. So it would be $15, and then 20% of 15 would be 3 $3, right? Um, we don't know if that's true. UFC hasn't commented on the record. Uh, another reporter who I trust, Jerry Botter, said that wasn't true. But um, 
there's just not a lot of information available. Uh, fighters and managers haven't had any clarification on it. So that information has not been made public. So we can only go with what we hear. And what we hear is from at least a few sources that that is the case. Um, could this be the case for them? May not be the case for others. But without UFC clarifying this, and they've been asked to clarify and have not, um, that's the best information that we have at this time. And that's all I can really say about it. What are your thoughts on UFC not offering Josh Thompson a new contract? Um, like I said, not altogether surprising. The three-fight skid probably didn't help. you know. But I think more than anything else, these guys that have an association with Zinc and Entertainment um, or you know, a, a, a previously strong relationship with and or a previously strong relationship with Scott Coker, they're going to be looking for the exit when they can sort of the latter stage career. Phil Davis is not quite in that space, but the Zinc and Entertainment connection is what he has. But anyway, if you if you know if you want to make more money with your sponsors and and you could fight in a showcased kind of way, which Josh Thompson can under Scott Coker, and um, there's a lot of opportunity there for you. Look, some guys are going to be able to get a better deal from Bellator. I don't think that should be altogether surprising. Not many guys will in the totality of all the elite world class talent. Many will not, but some will, and the ones who will, you know, they're going to go. People think that like the UFC in all cases can and will offer a better deal. Um, that, that that's wrong on both counts. Maybe this one they wouldn't because uh, they could have. But, you know, some people don't want to, like Fedor Emelianenko, we'll see what he does. He may end, end up uh, signing with UFC. Or he might take less and say, I don't want to deal with Dana White. You know, to him that's worth it. So we'll see. Or maybe he says, I do want to deal with Dana White. And I want more money, and I'll take that deal. So some deals will make sense for some guys. Some deals won't. Uh, let's go to the Twitter machine if we can for just a second. Will Weidman versus Silva 3 happen? No. In light of the Reebok deal, what sort of level of fighters will go to Bellator when their UFC contracts expire? Probably non-championship fighters, um, guys with a name, guys with some tenure, Guys with some fan, uh, you know, guys who are uh, who have a bit of a fan following, a dedicated fan following. I suspect any anybody that can, uh, um, um, you know, anybody that has a bit of a name and therefore, uh, you know, you, like look, look, why did Josh Koscheck go, right? Because he has a bit of a name. He can get, I think, you know, some marketable fights from there. I don't anticipate him fighting for very long over there. Um, and, you know, he has the ability to attract sponsors. Um, guy like Phil Davis, still in his prime, can, you know, um, I don't know what UFC offered him, probably not much. But um, he's very valuable to Bellator. He has an affliction sponsorship. It's worth it to keep him. To get the idea, you know, there's just a lot you can do there. So, but of guys who... You know, if they're championship-level contenders, they wouldn't want to, or if they're otherwise, you know, um, relatively anonymous. Um, someone says, oh, uh, champions moving up in weight class. List them. Gee, I don't know. How about any boxing champion ever? I mean, this is a very simple task. Um, Anderson Silva. Um, <laughs> Matt Hughes fought outside of his weight class while holding a title. We've been over this already. This is what champions do. Like everyone's like, I don't know of any champions that have gone up to their weight class when they cleared it out. Well, then you don't watch boxing. 
Um, or you don't watch combat sports generally then. Here. That's your issue to deal with, not mine. Again, questions. What do you think? What do you make of the CM Punk and Pendred Twitter battle? Could that fight happen on a barge somewhere? I talked to Jonathan Snowden about that. Year end pay per view. Let's say it's Ronda Rousey versus Tate Three, and Jacek versus Gedalia, Nunes versus Ngano, Holm versus Cohea, and Torres versus Jojo. Amount of pay per view sold. Well, they wouldn't do that, but if they did, it would sell a lot because just a headliner alone, close to a million. Uh, which UFC fighters, off the top of your head, would you like to see try their hand in glory kickboxing? Well, I'm glad Paul Daly is doing it, so there's that. But in UFC, um, Edson Barboza, I'd like to see Paul Felder do it. I'd like to see Cowboy try his hand. I'd like to see um, Anderson Silva try. I'd like to see, believe it or not, uh, no, because you can't clinch but for one, with one hand in glory, so I won't, I won't say Verdum. Um... um I would not want to see Dos Santos, actually. I don't know that his style would be all that great for glory. Uh, Roy Nelson, just for the fun of it. Um, let's see. Who else? Maybe Luke Rockhold, even. Um, if they could find opponents for him, I would say Conor McGregor would be kind of fun. Um, Jose Aldo. Uh who at 155? Well, I already know. 155. Um, Dominic Cruz, believe it or not. TJ Dillashaw. Um, yeah, there's a lot of guys I'd like to see. What do you make of Tim Kennedy's comment about Reebok total pay out of the main card is less than he had in Strike Force? I find it absolutely and entirely believable and a, um, a unfortunate commentary on the nature of that deal. Or false. Co-main event to McGregor versus Aldo is Cyborg versus Ngano at 140. I'd love it if they did, but it's false probably. How would Pettis versus McGregor go down? Um, I like Pettis' chances there. The Anderson Silva PED scandal was a big one. Do you believe we will see in the future a bigger one? Yeah. I think you're eventually going to see a sitting champion. Not because I, you know, I'm not making any inflammatory comments about anyone right now. It could be in 20 years, but it just stands to reason mathematically. Eventually, a a sitting champion is going to get called with this stuff. It just it just stands to reason because they made a bad choice because they were always using an evaded, you know, whatever. I mean, look at every other discipline in sports. The high, it always touches the highest level eventually, you know, and in some cases the very very highest level. It's just it's inevitable that that's going to come around to MMA sooner or later. Not because MMA necessarily may or may not be dirtier, just mathematically, that's how it goes. Um, with UFC 194, do you expect the UFC to pull all the stops out and do another tour considering the risk? I don't think they're going to do another tour because I think that was expensive and probably not necessary to do a second one. But I do expect a heavy PR push, maybe a unique kind, maybe one more in keeping with traditional ones because the fight can sort of sell itself. And they'll do like a bigger, you know, um, effort towards uh, paid media, um, you know, like billboards or TV commercials or that kind of thing. But I don't, I don't expect them to do another world tour. I just find that to be, you know, they already did one. They don't need to do another one. The word's out. The momentum is there. People are interested. It did its job in a lasting kind of way, which is a success and a testament 
to that effort, actually. Um, let's see, what else do we got here? All right, let's go back to the uh, live chat questions. Maybe what else we can get to. Quick fire, yes or no? Will the following fighters ever be UFC champion? Alistair Overeem, no. Gustafson, no. Duffy, I'll say yes. Dodson, no. Rockhold, I'll say yes. Jacare, no. Michael Johnson, no. Wonderboy Thompson, no. Tyrone Woodley, no. Rafael Sunsau, no. Anthony Rumble Johnson, no. Chad Mendez, spelled wrong, no. Misha Tate, no. Joanne Calderwood, no. Women's bantamweight. Call me crazy, but I believe there are still changes for Ronda Rousey at 135. Challenges. Amanda Nunes just got a big win. Both Holly Holm and uh, Juliana Pena are new challengers also that they haven't been in the UFC or haven't beaten in the UFC yet. Let's not forget Kat Zingano took a risk and made a mistake. You know, what about these women? I, I agree. You know, the Misha Tate fight seems to be a cash grab. Um, you, know, you can also make the claim that Tate is sort of at the front of the line, but I think that, that fight is just being created to cater to hardcore or uh, to uh, casual audiences. But I agree with you that they can make a Noons fight. I don't find that to be very competitive, but they could. And Lima as well. You know, I think Lima could do better than some, but I like Rossi's chances against all of them. But, you know, I I think once you sort of accept that the gap between them is, you know, Rossi and everyone else, but once you really sort of get a, get a hold on how far apart they are, I agree with you that these fights make sense. But, like, you know, for example, Holm, her, her fight relies on distance. Like, like, Rousey is excellent at closing the distance one way or the other. Holm doesn't have a knockout punch, and Holm uses a lot of kicks to keep distance. Against Rousey, that is a disaster. That is a disaster waiting to happen, you know. Future Rousey card. A number of people don't think UFC 190 was built correctly for the large new audience Ronda Rousey brought in, me being one of them. A few tough Brazil fights and some old relic uh, relics flailing at each other's Withered husks isn't what, isn't what you would pack around the most popular talent the UFC has to offer. With that in mind, who would you book on the next Rousey event to maximize exposure for other fighters who might appeal to new viewers? Here's what I'm thinking. Uh, Rousey versus Tate. Ian Jacek versus Gedalia. Dos Santos Overeem. Alvarez versus Ferguson. Cyborg Justino versus Alexis Davis. And here's his argument. If it isn't clear... This fight for Cyborg would be at 135 to see if she can get there and what she looks like. Not that I don't mind her fighting Rousey someday at 140, but if the UFC insists at 135, her fighting at 135 against a vet like Davis is a plan I don't hate. Um, I don't like the idea of her fighting anyone beforehand because I think all these things have a bad consequence. I think the fight should be at 140, and then they should just go ahead and make it. Um, so I don't like the idea of her having to make 135 first and see how she looks and if she gets past. Then you, then you put her in the main event or whatever the case against Rousey because we just you watch enough combat sports, you know the more obstacles you put in front of a fight, the more those obstacles work. Um, as for the rest of those fights, it's the, they're all interesting choices. But for me, the real one, and it's come up in this chat and a lot of other places, is about the connection between Rousey and, and Jacek. And um, I'm, I'm curious about that one. I don't know what it means. I don't know if... Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's a real connectivity between one woman and another woman, and that being an easier sell than Rousey and sort of some, you know, high-end bantamweight or some high-end middleweight. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I, I, I people have asked, is it was Rousey being a woman, and then Ian Jacek being a woman, plus with this great fan-friendly style and this like you know these theatrics that she brings, wouldn't that 
wouldn't that be an easier sell for Rousey fans to get on board? And maybe it would. I certainly don't know, but um, I'm curious about it as well. So I think you should pair them up just to see how that experiment works. Um, but for the rest of them, I definitely don't like. I don't like the idea of just you know taking a 135 fight against anyone before fight. If you're gonna do 135, then just go right to Rousey, or just do 140 and go right to Rousey. The future of MMA managers. Whatever came of that meeting of MMA fighter managers that coincided with the UFC in Las Vegas recently. The UFC wants to squeeze out managers. Unions probably do too. Uh, I don't think unions want to squeeze out managers at all. What is the future of MMA managers? Yeah, I told you guys before that nothing was going to come out of that meeting. Set it on MMA beat. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something in the works that I don't know about, but yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, Luke, the Ronda Rousey hypocrisy is killing me here. Doesn't it seem strange to you that most Ronda Rousey fans, media, etc., saying Cyborg is much bigger than what the hell is this person asking? Um, Ronda Rousey says Cyborg must be on the juice to not be able to make 135, but yet she has a training partner and best friend who says she can't make 135 and be the same fighter, uh, Marina, uh, who is smaller than Cyborg. Thanks. Isn't there a bit of hypocrisy there? Yeah. The way argument is phony. It's phony. You will run into a number of dead ends trying to float it as some sort of real obstacle. There's an answer for every weight iteration argument you can have in suggesting that like this fight has to be at 135. This total it only happens to have only has to happen at 135 if Roxy says, I don't really want to go up and wait, I want to stay at 135. Okay, well then you know, I guess it is on cyborg to the extent that she wants it and she isn't has a less leveraging position. But this idea that like, you know, we can't have it outside of that, or like, you know, there's some sort of like metaphysical reason for preserving the fight at that weight class because the sport will suffer some sort of harm is total nonsense. There's no truth to it at all. Someone posted a picture of uh, Cyborg's annexes in Ghana, and she's like twice her size. Then there's one next to her, Ian Jacek. She doesn't look quite that much bigger. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, let's see. Um, talking about the Monday morning analyst, Luke, were you maybe already planning something like this, but have considered adding any tiny clips of fights or screenshots with arrows on them, similar to BJJ Scout, which you are taking it through? Well, he gets his videos. I love BJJ Scout, but he gets his videos taken down all the time. And uh, you can't use any video clips because UFC won't let you. Bellator will let you. Um, and Bill, I guess you can take screenshots for UFC. But yes, there's a major upgrade to the Monday morning analyst coming, if not by the time I go on vacation. By the way, I'm going on vacation first two weeks of September, so there'll be no content for me from then. Um, but uh, yeah, there's going to be improvements made to the podcast. Everyone's asking, like, I wish I had some sort of visual aid. You will get one. And then one more, we'll get out of here. Um, someone already asked about an all-women's card. 
Uh, Luke, the email the UFC sent out to the fighters about ignoring the union talk, where to begin? Give us your thoughts on it, please. Um, suppose not surprising. I do think that the that the um, Unite here and Culinary Union are going to have a little bit of difficulty from a public relations standpoint about convincing people that they're pro-fighter when they have sort of stood in the way of New York legalization. Uh, that's going to be an interesting hurdle. But, you know, look, um, I don't think anyone would ever uh, accuse the powers that be in mixed martial arts of being essentially pro-union, ever. Not, and everyone was like, well, it's just this union. Well, I mean, name another, name another union that they like and or support. Um, you know, or have any evidence and demonstrated record. I mean, there's unions fighting them in New York for a reason. Um, maybe the reasons are bad ones, but certainly it's, you know, they, these are, these are opposing parties, right? And so this to me is just another front on the same kind of war that those two parties are having. Who's right about it? You can decide. But um, that's how I look at this. I look at this as, this is not, this is, this is, these unions versus the Fertitas, and that manifested itself in New York, and now it's manifesting itself with this sort of association that they want to build um, for fighters. It's, it's all connected to that. So the idea that UFC is anti just that union, I mean, some people in UFC might be, but to me it's not really about that. It's about those two opposing worlds colliding on a series of different fronts. One in New York, one on this, one at Station Casinos. You get the idea. Okay. With that, I believe, yes, we are out of time. I have to go. I appreciate everyone's patronage today, watching. Um, you can get at me on Twitter, at Thomas. You can email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. You can, by the way, subscribe to this on podcast. I'm on SoundCloud or iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. Pretty simple. Um, so thank you for watching. And this will go up on iTunes very shortly. And I guess I will have some more content for you on Monday with the Monday Morning Analyst if there's anything to actually talk about. There's a few things. We'll see. I don't know how it's going to go. But uh, have a good weekend. No UFC events. No MMA events. No nothing. Enjoy your Saturday. Get out. Go drink a beer. Go go ask someone out on a date. Go take a walk in a park. Do some sit-ups. Don't do anything related to MMA so you can come back on Monday strong, ready for the next fight night and next Bell Tour show. Okay, see you guys next week. Bye. Oh, stay frosty.